Now this evening, uh, the observance night, and the this is the last month of the three months uh, winter retreat, and I'm visiting here briefly to. Uh, do some necessary things. And so I've been invited to address you this evening. And again, as you know, I'm, this is for reflection. I'm not uh, telling you uh, or trying to convert you or convince you of anything whatsoever. <laughs> so the point is, in reflection, it's uh, look at yourself, look at what, you know, what I, what you hear, how it affects you. Because this is the developing the path to be aware, awake, present, here and now, and aware of the way it is. So this is uh, quite simple and but it, uh, we're conditioned to grasp ideas and have views and opinions and uh, we're used to trying to become, control, uh, possess things or get rid of things. And so when we hear like a, a sermon or a dhammadesana or whatever you want to call it, sometimes we, we get caught up in whether you know, we agree disagree, we like what we don't like it, we, uh, we battled by it, we don't understand, we understand, or whatever. But all it for developing, for Pawana, is to be aware of the way it is. And each one of us, of course, is, is in this position of being able to the way it is, not in terms of judgment, in terms of saying it's good, bad, right or wrong, but it is like this. So like the, the uh, atmosphere in this temple, the temperature in this temple is like this. And so we're not saying it's, not, I'm not cri criticizing and saying it's too cold. Or thinking about the future of having to repair the heating system. <laughs> but in terms of, of just reflecting, aware that the, it's like this, is not, is not describing it or judging it, but noticing the effect of the here and now on this consciousness. It's like this. Now this is what we call reflecting or noting or recognizing the way it is. Now we, we tend to just react to the way it is. So if we say it's too cold, like cold is, a, is usually, uh, you know, something, it's a judgment. It's too hot, too cold, too stuffy, too windy, whatever. Then, these, then we're caught into the conventional, uh, critical 
mind that we have, in which we're very well, uh, you know, provided in that respect. Our whole culture, education, is about uh, developing a critical mind to see what what is good, what is bad, right, wrong, male, female, day and night. Notice this all depends on language, like language is is very functional, is to is to divide things. So when we're just caught in our thinking process, when we try to think ourselves to enlightenment or try to understand Buddha Dhamma through thinking about it, through rational thought or intelligent thinking even doesn't do it, analysis or whatever, we're kind of we can understand uh, about Buddhism, but we don't know the reality. We don't know Dhamma the way it is. We're merely caught in views, opinions, words, concepts. So in the Buddhist world, of course, in the, here in Britain or uh, in the world in general, there's the Mahayana, Hinayana, Theravada, Zen, Tibetan, uh, Western Buddhist order, modern Buddhism, British Buddhism, Thai Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism. These are, this, this is not Dhamma. None of this is Dhamma. This, uh, these are uh, words, concepts that point to certain qualities, certain attitudes, certain emphasis. So in uh, reflecting on the way it is, we, we, we need to recognize the limitation of thought and convention. So in the Vipassana meditation, the, when we start practicing Vipassana, is looking into the way it is. Uh, uh, first starting with the conditioned realm, with the five khandhas, the six ayatanas, namarupa, uh, these are the poly, poly terms for um, these divisions. Six senses, five khandhas, five groups. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. These are, these are words, concepts, thoughts. They're conventions. But the the purpose of these conventions is not to grasp the word or the concept, but point to the to the reality of it in the present moment. So just like consciousness itself, vijnana, kanda. Right now, isn't it? It's it's uh, you wa- you might want to define vijnana and and uh, have a nice, neat little definition from the Pali dictionary or whatever, but the reality of, of consciousness is now we're all conscious entities sitting here. So we don't need to resort to, to trying to find a, a, the perfect definition for consciousness. It's waking up to the reality of consciousness because it's, it's happening now It's like this. Are any of you unconscious, right? <laughs> and then uh, 
rupa, or it is the form, the body in this respect. Now the body is here and now, isn't it? It's not, we're not trying to to define it intellectually, but when we use the word rupa, observe rupa. So noting the, the reality of your own, the experience of your own body as it is right now. Vedana is about is feeling. So there's pleasurable, painful, neutral feeling. That, uh, but these are to be seen now. What is pleasurable feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. And it's not to, to um, make any problem about it, but recognize pain. Or even the word pain is a, is a kind of negative, giving a, it a kind of negative quality. But whatever you're feeling physically at this moment, it's like this. Consciousness is like this, the body is like this. Sensation is like this. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. Sanya, perception. Through the senses we perceive. And in Sankara, we, we give names and concepts and reaction, emotional reactions to what we perceive, what impinges. And so, Consciousness is the vehicle, really, that we're experiencing. And then the uh, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara are the different variations of, uh, of, you know, of what we're experiencing in the, on the conditioned level. And they're all anicca, dukkha, nata, impermanent. Contemplating change, impermanence is like this. Dukkha is suffering or unsatisfactory. It's not perfect, in other words. You can't find perfection in these khandhas. There's no khandha, no matter how pleasant or beautiful or good it is, it is perfect. There's always, because it's changing. So when we use the word dukkha sometimes for suffering, suffering is a bit points to very usually just a negative feeling of some sort. But even goodness and beauty on the conditioned plane is still dukkha. It's not perfect in the sense that it it's perfect in the fact that it is changing. But when we want it, when we grasp, we want pleasure, we want happiness, we want beauty, we want all the good things, then when we grasp them out of ignorance, then of course we suffer because whatever we grasp, you know, we, we're grasping something that's changing. So it's going to inevitably disappoint us. No matter how at the moment it might please us, it will, it changes and we lose it. In my own practice, I remember just recognizing that the way the Buddha actually was pointing at uh, at uh, impermanence, that all conditioned phenomena, 
is impermanent, the base Angarani Cha. All conditions are impermanent. Now notice that that is a reflection, that's not a doctrine to grasp, but it's a, it's a reference, remind ourselves, because out of ignorance of Dhamma, we, we're always looking for permanent happiness and security in what is impermanent and unsatisfactory. And all sankharas, it doesn't, it's not a matter of whether they're, you know, heavy material, obvious uh, conditions or subtle movements of, of thought or emotion, whether they're sublime or profane or, or coarse or refined or whatever. That's the quality. These are qualities that we use to, to uh, divide them. We, the coarse, we, d- we want re- to be refined. We want the pleasurable things. We don't want uh, failure. We don't want to be unhappy. We don't want to uh, be disrespected or humiliated or embarrassed or persecuted, or despised. And on a personal level, we want to be respected, to be admired, to be successful, to be happy, to be healthy, prosperous. When we send greeting cards, we say, may you be happy and successful and prosperous and make lots of money for the new year and have good health and long life and physical beauty. And that makes us feel good. Somebody sends us, may you fail, be miserable and ugly. That must be some kind of demon. Somebody wants wants the worst for me. (coughs) So the best and the worst, these are extreme. Notice how thought moves. It, It goes to extremes wanting to be successful. Uh, being successful is an extreme and, and the failure is its opposite. Happiness and suffering and, and uh, pleasure and pain. Being respected, being admired, being loved and then their opposites. Disrespected, hated, rejected. So all sankharas, these are sankharas, and and as long as we're unaware, not awakened to the limitation of sankhara, then we're we're lost in that realm of uh, relentless changingness. And so that's why the world is the way it is. Why, you know, people, there are hardly any human beings that are really content with what they have. I mean, we're, we're usually, even if we have the best, we're still, it doesn't bring contentment, does it? It doesn't allow us to feel contentment. In monastic life, say, we're, we're moving towards contentment, not, which is, uh, you know, like the reflection on the four requisites, on the the samanasanya, the reflections on monastic life itself, what I am uh, dependent on the 
gifts of others and so forth. This is these are helpful ways of reflecting to allow us to bring us to a to the reality of contentment. Like the Buddha established the monastic order on alms mendicancy, not on getting the best, of having the best of everything, demanding the highest quality and the the best food and and so forth and having you know financial security and and owning our property and having everything you know nicely arranged for us is the the idea of the samana is one who uh, depends on alms food uh, robes that you you know if nobody gives you decent cloth to make a robe you you go and get rags from Oxfam and stitch up a robe. <laughs> well, it, this is, you say, how can you be content with rag robes and alms food? But if you reflect, this takes a reflective mind because to be content, you have to recognize the pain of being discontented. And how, you know, in, in, in monastic life, from my own experience, and just the suffering I went through, through being discontented with it, with what I had, with the kuti they gave me, with the food that I received, and thinking, uh, you know, not liking it or wanting something better, or envying others who, who have better requisites than I do, I could make my life as a monk, you know, into the experience of discontentment. You get bored with being in the same monastery, so you start thinking, be content, I'd be happier in another place, or go to Thailand, or go to the United States, or whatever, then this is uh, always the, the, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. But training yourself as a samana is to train yourself to, to recognize the, the discontentment we create. What is it? Is this peacefulness? Is this a state of mind that I want to perpetuate? Always wanting something I don't have or not wanting something I have. So we can understand this uh, on the verbal level, but to recognize the <coughs> the suffering or the dukkha of the of always being restless, uh, ungrateful, uh, envious of others, wanting something, not wanting something, is like this. So you. Uh, the Buddha said, know, know what desire is, the dhanha. Get to really know, be an expert on desire. Not one who gets lost in desire, but recognizes desire. Because it's the desire, the, the attachment to desire that makes us discontented. It's always wanting, not wanting. The complaining mind, you know, complaining about this or complaining about the the people you're living with or the weather or the place you have or whatever is 
this notice that complaining, discontentedness is like this. And you begin to recognize uh, that this is dukkha. And if you keep following it, trying to, you know, following this, wanting something, or trying to suppress it, trying to get rid of your discontentment out of a desire to get rid of this pain. And that's also suffering. So it's not a matter of, of getting rid of discontentment or getting rid of desire, but recognizing. And to recognize desire, it takes this awareness. So you know desire in all its uh, kind of subtleties or its grossness. <coughs> so in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the second Noble Truth is the uh, you know, insight into desire, desire, karma dana, sensual desire, bhava dana, desire for becoming something, uh, vipava dana, desire to get rid of, which is like suppressing, resisting, denying. Now we can say uh, we're trying to get rid of desire, but we're not trying to get rid of it. We're studying it, noticing like this, this movement in the mind, in the consciousness of, of always wanting something, trying to, even when you're practicing on this winter retreat, trying to attain something, trying to get your samadhi, trying to get rid of a distracted mind, get rid of wandering thoughts, get rid of negative states, and attain happy states, blissful states, wanting to get jhanas and and attain the eye of concentration, wanting to become Sotapanna, Arahant, and so forth. All these are the, you know, desires, wanting to become, wanting to get rid of. Wanting to distract itself through sensory impingement, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. Notice that the conditioned realm is a restless realm. Its very nature is restless. The five khandhas are restless. The, the six ayatanas are all about restlessness, movement and change. This, is a, this realm that we're experiencing through, through human birth on this planet is all about restlessness. So this is, this is a natural state. This is the way sankharas are. They're, they're changing. So we're not trying to get rid of restlessness. We're not trying to deny the world or, or reject the world or judge the world as good or bad, but know the world, know the sankharas, know the way it is, know the five khandhas, six ayatanas, they're like this. This is the, and this we, in order to have these insights, look at yourself. 
You don't have to read it in a book, but notice the reality of restlessness, of desire, of wanting, not wanting, trying to get something, trying to get rid of something. How many of you have suffered a lot during this winter's retreat just by trying to get nice peaceful states, trying to get rid of negative thoughts or a wandering mind? Trying to get rid of sleepiness or dullness or doubt. And it goes on and on. It's, it's just a, you know, we can have moments of peace just through, through a kind of concentration. But as soon as the concentration is broken, then we, we're, you know, we, we lose that pleasurable feeling of, of peacefulness. So the only way that that one can be free from this is not through suicide or suppression or denial. <coughs> you don't have to blind yourself or plug up your ears. But pay attention. And it's very clear in the Buddhist teaching that, that you know that the way is a mindfulness the is the Mindfulness, awareness, heedfulness in the present is the deathless itself. So the trouble with the word deathless is it is a word. And so then we want to, well, well what is the deathless then? And, and you want to think about the deathless, as uh, in some kind, maybe, you know, through some kind of metaphysical contemplations. I believe in the deathless reality and in, in some kind of uh, transcendent state or some kind of, uh, you know, ultimate realm that is above uh, that we hope to. Uh, recognize by suppressing all the khandhas and the, and the atanas. So in the en endless struggle of trying to deny, get rid of, control is, is, is futile because recognize that at this moment, this very moment here and now, where the realm of the sankaras is very, is like this. The body consciousness, the body, and what you're thinking or feeling, uh, emotionally, what's going on, whether it's pleasurable, painful, neutral, or whatever. But it is like this. By fully investigating sankharas, you know, whether, you know, and first, you know, start out with what's most obvious, like the body and, and the sensory impingement, things like this are quite obvious. But so many of them are quite subtle, too. So, so the, even the jhanas are sankharas. So, high levels of refined absorption are still Sankaras. 
So then the, it's not a matter of becoming more and more refined, trying to, you know, live in a realm, in an ivory tower of refinement and controlling the environment to the point where that anything coarse, gross, unpleasant is, is suppressed or not allowed. Because that's not the way this realm is. This realm, this human realm that we're experiencing is like this. Having a body is like this. Being conscious within the limitations of a human body, male or female, is like this. The human body is a is is experience of it's a feeling experience. How can you just attain a neutral sensation physically because just right now many of you you know sitting long enough or the 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 temperature of the room or feeling you know the body's feeling it picking up the 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 pain of sitting for a long time or the the uh, coolness of the temperature so this realm sense realm that we're experiencing is not to be despised or judged or denied or destroyed, but recognized. And this is a recognition. In this recognition, then this is the deathless reality through awareness. And that, of course, is timeless. Uh, Santitiko Akaliko Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless. Now when you think about what timelessness is, then you're caught in the trap again, but you can't figure it out. You, this is where you need to recognize it, the reality of timelessness. So forget with you know trying to figure out what what's timeless about now, because just by thinking about it, thinking itself is time. I have a clock; it chitters in the reception room, that was given to me by the Queen of Thailand many years ago. Queen Thirket gave it to me herself, uh, and when I was went to give a. a a talk, a Dhamma reflection in the palace in Chiang Mai. She gave me this clock, which is now existing in the reception room at Chitters, the kind of mother-of-pearl inlay clock, uh, round clock, and, and written on the clock is thought. And I've always liked that, because time, <coughs> thought, it's all about, that's the way it is, you know. Thinking is time. Let's notice what thinking does. You have one thought moment at a time. You can't think two thoughts at the same moment. So you have to think A and then B. And if you try to think A, B at the same moment, it's impossible because thought is like that. And then that's time also. You go to all the way to Z. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. That's time. <laughs> I mean, I said that very quickly, but it's still. 
<laughs> Still time. The body's time. Thoughts, uh, feelings, change as it begins and it ends. A year, an hour, a minute, a second. So timelessness, a kalika dhamma, is can't be can't be uh, seen as an object. It's the reality of now, and uh, so it's not something you you observe as some something that you know that which is timeless. It's it's the it's the only possible way that we can realize or recognize timelessness is through letting go of time or conditioned phenomena. Now letting go of conditioned phenomena doesn't mean getting rid of it. It As I said before, it's not suicide. Buddha was not recommending suicide. In fact, he he forbade it. It's an offense. If if I commit suicide, I'm uh, offended against the monastic discipline. What is the what is the punishment for it? <laughs> so, but deathlessness, timelessness. We chant this every day: Santidiko, Akaliko, Ehi Pasko, Upanayko, Budgetang, Budgetang Waiti Dapo Inui. To know for yourself, to know individually, through wisdom. Now what is that? Well that is what, what I refer to as sati, sampachanya, sati panya, these are the Pali words, which translated into English is, is awareness. Intuitive awareness, using the word intuitive, an intuitive moment is, is that which is aware of and receptive to the way it is, but it's not, it's not thinking or analyzing or judging. When you're, when, when you're intuitive, you tend to be aware of everything at this moment, and right here and now, the reality of now, without dividing it, without you know, saying, this, I like this and I don't like that. But this reality now is this. And, it, and when, when I remember, when I, when I use this way of reflection, I to I have to open to it. It's not something I concentrate on and and absorb into. To for an intuitive reality, it's it's like opening, kind of opening up like this, relaxing, observing. And then awareness of this is awareness. It's the different state than concentrating on an object. I concentrate on an object, then I shut off everything else and just look at this by suppressing all other impingement. So if I go into, if I absorb into this plastic bottle of vulvic water, I become that. I become vulvic water. Bottle, anyway. 
because through concentration you ab you can absorb into the object. But then that's that's isolating. That's still a conditioned experience. The unconditioned then is is recognized through sati sampatanya. It's a recognition. So it's nothing you can find. It's not something that you don't have or something you've got to create. You've got to control your mind, control your body, control the environment so that you can uh, eventually have this experience, this ultimate experience of the unconditioned through shutting everything off. You'll never have it that way because your whole intention is a controlling, uh, forcing, compelling, wanting to to uh, get rid of anything that 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 distraction that might distract you or be unpleasant. So sati samatanya is the only way that this that we can free ourselves from the death-bound, time-bound conditions of our bodies, thoughts, emotions. Because all these are about time. They're all changing, all dependent. The conditions are all dependent on other conditions. None of them are independent an absolute. There's no absoluteness in conditioned phenomena. So that's why I, I'm stressing so much this, this getting beyond the thinking process. Now how do you do that? Now this was a, a, a challenge to me because <coughs> like most of you, you we're people who have been educated to think. Spent years educational institutions thinking and reading and acquiring information and learning all about all kinds of things. Come from a society that, that always points to extremities. Like in the United States where I'm from, you know, the, the cultural conditions there are always to be successful, healthy, happy. You know, extre extremities of sankharas are desirable. Not to be a failure, not to be weak or sickly. Uh, you know, not, we don't want suffering. We want happiness, happiness evermore. We want all the best. And so these, and those, the best is an extreme. Best is an extreme. To be the best monk is, is uh, you've missed the point. To be, you know, or the worst. To see, see things in terms of good, better, best, bad, worse, worse. This is, you're back in the thinking realm again. So the awareness, intuitive awareness, is, has no extremity to it. It has no quality to it. Is it, is it red or blue? Is it, you know, air or is it 
fire or is it what what is it you know I want to tell me define it give it to me or recognizing it means that we we're letting go in order to recognize we need to let go releasing ourselves from the binding habits we have to the five khandhas, the identities, the personalities we have, the, the memories, the emotions, <coughs> the thoughts, all of this that we, that is our world that makes me special. Like the body itself, I've never seen anyone that looked exactly like I do. And yet I'm not kind of an average looking person. I'm not kind of so special that I'm, you know, I'm a freak. There's no, no <laughs> but notice all the infinite variety of, of uh, you know, with, with all the human beings on this planet, you know, they even, even uh, identical twins, if you notice enough, you can see differences. So in our ways, you know, we're special on the conditioned level. I'm, I have a male body, and so that, set, that puts me opposite to the female. The female body, I don't have a male body. So I'm a man. There's logic there, isn't it? It makes sense and everybody would agree with me. Except nowadays sometimes people have male bodies, they don't, they think they're females. <laughs> so I mean, that I've never had a problem with, but, but that happens, you know. It's not that, you know, it's not anything wrong with that. But it's still an identity. You know, if, if I feel I'm a female in a male body, that's still an identity with something, a, a division. There's a female mind and a male mind and a male body, female mind, or female body, male mind. These are, these are words, thoughts, divisions, qualities that separate and divide. So what is it, that which is aware of this, aware of uh, the identity with the, with the physical body, you know, that, that which is aware is not the body. The body is in the awareness. And so the awareness then is the, is the, liberation from, from being attached, limited, bound into the physical bodies we have. Or the attitudes we have about them, the identities as male, female, or tall, short, or old and young, Asian or European, black or white, all of these are sankharas, qualities, of sankharas that are uh, that always convey extremity, opposites. I remember 
I used to contem- you know, and I used to like to read mystical literature. And they talk about the oneness, this experience of oneness. And so I kept trying to figure out what oneness could be. Because, <clears throat> you know, one, oneness sounds like this union with the ultimate oneness, not two anymore. And so, you know, and the more I thought about oneness, then I had to put it on a kind of plane of some advanced state of consciousness that I wasn't experiencing. Because uh, the thought process was taking a word, oneness, and, and then thinking about it as some kind of unity or wonderful state of unity or mystical union with God or ultimate truth. But all these, God, ultimate truth, mystical union, these are all words, concepts again. As long as you stay in that realm, no matter how lovely the concepts might be, how inspiring they might be to you, they're still the very, they're the, they're the division. They're the sankharas that keep you bound to, to the illusion of birth and death and self. So then, I always, you know, most of us have been attracted to the teaching of the Buddha because intuitively, I think we, you know, we recognize it in a way. Remember when I first became interested in Buddhism, I couldn't understand why I was. You know, it wasn't like it was a rational choice that I made over, you know, investigating all other religions. I chose Buddhism because it's the best. It wasn't like that at all. It was much more intuitive than something in me. Uh, It was an intuitive moment of of recognizing. But when I tried to explain it, I couldn't. It was unexplainable. I didn't know why I felt this attraction or this kind of faith or interest in it. It just happened. But then the the emphasis, as I began to practice more and more in the meditation, then, uh, and of course, the words sati sampachanya, sati panya are so much used. And one of the first uh, meditation instructions I ever had was on mindfulness, being mindful. And I didn't even know what that was. And so I was learning through this, this uh, Wat Maha taught, and this, this Burmese method where you do everything in slow motion. So I thought mindfulness was doing everything in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the only way you could be mindful was, you, know, you can't be mindful if you're running to catch the bus. Because I'd have to watch each movement of my foot in slow motion. I mean, it would take me forever to get to the bus stop. <laughs> By that time, the bus would <laughs> go. <laughs> or mindfulness, 
then is, uh, and so that was just how the mind associates a technique with, with, with the word, you know, so you're practicing mindfulness and then they tell you to do everything in this very uh, slow way. I became aware that, 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 you know, after doing that for some time, you know, I felt, I got quite concentrated and yet peaceful with it, but it didn't serve me very well outside of the particular hour or whatever that I was practicing, you know, and uh, it didn't seem all that practical in a way of living one's life, to walking and moving in such a slow way. Then as I began to observe more and more, reflect, <coughs> when I became a summoner of my upachaya, his, his, uh, his kind of instruction to me was on the five faculties, the five indriya, sata, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. And of course, the third indriya is sati. And then, but the, the upachaya pointed out it wasn't to be seen in a kind of linear style like one, two, three, four, five indriyas. You develop sata, sata first, like that's how the mind works. Uh, first one is sadha or faith. So that, you have to have sadha first and then viriya and then sati and then samadhi and then panya or wisdom. But the way the Upachaya explained it was sati was the kind of like the, the kingpin, the, the axis. And then the balance points of viriya and samadhi Sattā and Panya, or faith, wisdom, effort and concentration. That was interesting because I would never have figured that out if he hadn't told me. <laughs> and emphasized Sati. Uh, and then the then these two, these two, the other two, like the effort, virya, and samadhi concentration, they balance each other. It's not an extreme of concentration at the expense of effort, or extreme of wisdom at the expense of sadha, or too much sadha and no wisdom. With sati, then, then these, these uh, factors balance, these, what we would divide into the more active and passive factors, faculties. Well, that's intuition, isn't it? It's intuitive to do that. I mean, you can't you can't make yourself do it as as a theory, or just because you you, you've defined the words. It's knowing what the, what effort, concentration are in experience and the reality of here and now, faith and wisdom. Like translating the word sadha, Pali, as the English word faith. Faith in English, oftentimes, especially someone like skeptical person like myself, tends to mean you believe in silly things. People, like faith people, are usually kind of gullible types that will believe anything. They have a lot of faith, but no wisdom. And I was conceited to think, I'm not like that. I don't need faith. I'm, I'm a wisdom character. Because I'm very skeptical, and I think, and I doubt, and... And there was a conceit and pride in, in having developed a critical faculty and a skeptical tendency. 
But then in, <coughs> in, in reflecting of the realities, the reality of now, I began to understand or recognize faith or sada. Not what I thought it was in, in when I used it in before, but as as the reality of it's it's a you know the if we didn't have any faith we wouldn't be able to do anything. <coughs> it's interest or trust, just like in in meditation. <coughs> if you <coughs> There was enough interest in Buddhism for me to pursue it. Now that that interest, that awakening interest, because Buddhism interested me. What's that? Well, that's that's sada, really. The awakening, a, a certain amount of faith or tr- trust or interest in it, in order to try it out. Is it worth bothering with? Is it a waste of time? Is it just an airy-fairy philosophy that doesn't have any practical use? Or is it, what is it? There's enough interest and enough sadha to start, to go to to Wat Mahatatnas to be asked for training in meditation. There was faith. And then from that, then through the practice, then wisdom also began to to work together with faith. Being able to see things as they are. (coughs) In this five injuries, (coughs) this balancing of faith and wisdom, effort, concentration, and the axis is the sati. Now, in sati, translated as mindfulness, but it's the ability to remember now. It's a reminder, like, because we do get lost in the, in the, in the habits of thought and feeling. So we, uh, you know, we get carried away with our loves and hates and opinions and views. But that moment where you suddenly realize you're doing that, you know, that sati then, you have reflection Ah, that's a that's a a moment of mindfulness. As we begin to recognize, at first it doesn't, it seems very fleeting in itself. It seemed like mindfulness was a very frail and delicate thing, because the the momentum, the karmic conditioning that I had was so powerfully strong and convincing, like emotions. My emotional life was so overwhelming, you know, convincing and extremes of emotional reactions to things that I used to feel I never, I could never, ever get out of it. I'm just helpless victim of strong emotions. And people could say things, you know, you know, upset me just by saying something to me I didn't like, or I didn't, you know, insulted or put me down or humiliated me, offended me in some way. I could carry on for days being totally upset and angry about what somebody said to me or didn't say. Maybe they wouldn't speak to me that day. 
and I could be upset. <laughs> so dependent, isn't it? Dependent emotionally on being, having people smile and saying, we like you, we accept you, uh, we love you, we want you, we think you're wonderful. Uh, that makes me feel good, personally. So, in a way, you know, on a personal level, there's always this demand from the society around me, please say these nice things so I feel secure. Please make me feel secure, because if you don't, if you don't smile at me, if you, if you don't speak to me today, if you don't say something nice to me, I will feel very insecure and unhappy. And then, you know, when you're persecuted, you're bullied or blamed or criticized, totally shattered by that. So that's the personality. It's very, you know, we all have different degrees of, you know, personal conditioning and confidence on a personal level. Now, how can you get out of that? How can you be liberated from that? Because it is uh, such a powerful experience emotionally. If one's worthiness is dependent <coughs> on things around oneself, that's very shaky, isn't it? It's very uncertain. So one is always afraid. One lives in a realm of worry or fear, anxiety. And that's why, you know, societies are the way they are. Most people are caught in that realm. They're stuck there. And they, they, there's not much information on how to get outside it. Not to destroy it. Not trying to, to wipe out our personalities and, and not feel anything and have, don't have any emotions. But to realize the true nature that transcends, that is not sankhara, that is not a condition. And so, then this is the, what we're, we're doing this winter, isn't it? And hopefully, all the time. Don't just think it's for the winter's retreat. <coughs> Now the Four Noble Truths you know, are, I think is you know, one of the most skillful teachings because it, you know, well I have used it so I, it's what I know and so it's you know, something that uh, I find uh, has been you know, a, you know, a, a very helpful tool to use because you know, even in, you know, in the best of monastic life, in the high points of being a Buddhist monk, uh, monasticism at its very best, at its peak, is still, is still suffer if you haven't contemplated and had insight into these four noble truths. So, so it's not just being a monk that is, is the answer. The monk, monasticism is a, 
is a skillful means, but it's only that, it's a convention in itself. It's not meant to be a personal identity or a convention that you cling to and blind yourself with. It's, it's an expedient means in order to awaken to the ultimate truth, to Dhamma, to the way it is. And so in, in my own experience, for example, the, the third noble truth of cessation, Niroda Satya. Now this is, this Niroda is, can only be, you, you know, you can't think about, if you think about Niroda, it always sounds like annihilation. So rationally, you know, Theravada Buddhism sounds like, like it's a, a kind of annihilationism. If you just look at, at it in a rational way, or Nibbana, they used to define Nibbana as extinction. Use the, the English word extinction, which to me sounds like, you know, you're trying to kill everything, <coughs> extinguish everything, get rid of everything. <laughs> Uh, and so you know, some Christians oftentimes criticize us for being annihilationists. Because on a rational level, on the reasoning, on that level, it tends to sound like that. But the Buddha pointed very clearly in his first sermon, it's neither uh, eternalism or annihilationism. We're not trying to conceive of eternal, some kind of state of eternal, the state of eternality or of total annihilation. Those are the extremes. Game su yoko atakilamatanu yoko. But the machima batibata, the middle way, as they translate it, is awareness itself. This is the path. This is the deathless reality. And so it's awakening to this awakened, recognition, realization. It's real. It's not, it's reality. It's not, not a, a kind of idealized state we hope to attain. It's here and now. It's real. It's a fact. It's not some precious mental state either. It's not an extreme. So, you're probably all freezing and painful. <laughs> wanting me to shut up. <laughs> so, uh, this is for your reflection, and hopefully, it, you know, that this might encourage you, you know, to, because uh, what I'm trying to do is encourage you to, to trust in your awareness to recognize it and trust it. It's the, you know, the once you recognize it, then the, the power of that awareness increases to where the sankaras become, you know, no longer the, the determining factors or the things that one gets overwhelmed by. And so even though I said before I had, you know, I seem to be a hopeless victim of, of extreme emotions, 
I can still feel emotion. I feel even more, more sensitive. Sensitivity is even stronger. But it's in a perspective. It's seen in the, for what it is. It's dhamma. It's not no longer just lost in the habitual reactivity of love, hate, praise, and blame that I was before, on, as a, before I ever. Uh, developed awareness. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs>